Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 27 in our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday the 18th of July. And Leon, what's on the schedule for this week? Right now, we're going to have a chat to Jeremy Crooks. He's the Managing Director of Critio, and he's going to be talking us all about the impact of online advertising. That's right. It's Everybody knows it's uh, changed the shape of uh, the media, but uh, Jeremy goes into a lot of detail and it's very interesting. You'll notice a change in the audio level. We spoke to Jeremy by uh, Skype at our end and a telephone at his end, but it's clear enough and it's a very interesting interview. So let's listen to Jeremy Crooks. Jeremy, you're the MD of Critio, and uh, you guys are all into uh, digital advertising campaigns. How strong are digital advertising campaigns now? How important are they? I think from any advertiser's perspective, so that's companies wanting to sell products and services to consumers, um, advertising is just as important as it's ever been uh, as a medium to get the, the right message across to the right user at the right time. I think what digital does now... Uh, and online advertising is um, give advertisers a real ability to be able to target the right consumer for their message at the right time and now kind of on the right device. Um, you know, using data not just from their own website and what users do on their own website, but um, data that's generally available um, in the digital sort of industry to help um, look for those consumers that are probably going to make you some money. The most recent Comscore MMX report shows that Critio is uh, reaching close to 1 billion unique visitors per month. I mean, uh, how do you do it? <laughs> um, by working hard for a lot of years. So uh, we've been on the go since 2005, and we started out um, as a pure technology company, and we've really kept that pure technology focus. So we initially... Um, started out building an, an e-commerce recommendation engine um, and we, over the next couple of years, worked out that we probably weren't going to take over the world with an e-commerce widget. Um, however, that technology um, was so important for us, but we put that technology into a more of a mass medium like display advertising um, and we flipped the model. Um, so instead of it being a cost per thousand purchase metric, it was a cost per click. What difference does Facebook make to somebody like, say, Google Ads or, or even Critio? Or is your, your model different? Uh, I mean, the way that we work with Facebook is um, we see them as, a, as another publisher. So we work with advertisers and publishers, and our, our basic agreement is to try and help both of those um, clients uh, make more money from their websites. From, so from the advertiser point of view, it's about trying to understand on-site user behavior um, and to work out from all the people that go to advertiser's website which ones are more likely to do something now that earns the advertiser some money. Uh, when we find them on the internet, we serve them a, a relevant uh, display advertising banner. Hopefully the user clicks on that, comes back to the advertiser's website and completes the transaction. Uh, on the publisher side, we work um, directly with publishers. So we work in Australia with the top 30 out of the top 50 um, largest websites. Um, and we really work hard to try and buy um, as much of their premium quality inventory 
as we can, and we prepare to pay the the highest price that we possibly can for that. Uh, and we do that because we know if we find a high-value user for one of our advertisers um, on a high-value website, then that tends to lead to a really good result for both the advertiser and the publisher. Um, so Facebook is just another publisher for us. It's a really important partner. Um, I mean, they have a huge amount of scale globally in uh, in Australia. I think it's somewhere in excess of 250 billion page impressions a month. So, you know, when when the users leave our advertisers' websites and we find them on Facebook, then we we serve them advertising. So, Facebook's a really important partner for us. What about Google search ads? Well, in terms of Google, we work with them in a very sort of similar way to to Facebook. So. The way that Facebook and Google um, are traded programmatically, so you know the, their impressions are placed within a, an auction environment. Um, we work with Facebook's exchange to buy impressions from Facebook, and, and in the same way, we work with Google AdEx, uh, which is their exchange to buy impressions across the Google network. Right. I mean, uh, this raises a whole lot of interesting questions about uh, the future of newspapers, because newspapers are really struggling in this space. What's your What's your impression? Well, I think traditional media as a whole is, is really shifting. Um, I think from from our perspective, certainly, and from advertisers' perspective, um, if you're not kind of following the consumer and understanding what their media consumption habits are, which devices they'd like to use to access whatever you're trying to sell them, um, then you're kind of probably missing out a little bit. Um, I mean, I know personally that I, I tend to, to read newspapers, but not in the physical format. Um, I, I read the, the digital version of that. So, you know, we can look at some of the, the recent studies that the, the IAB have done, um, both in Australia and, and overseas. And, you know, the, the, the metrics that they're seeing is that consumers are using more digital channels more of the time to access content um, and probably less of the traditional media. But I, I still think there's a place for traditional media. If we look at TV as a medium, um, you know, television, we know still drives a lot of traffic online and now as we kind of move into more of the multi-screen sort of world where you know, users, uh, consumers are, are sat at home on an evening, um, they're watching television, they might have a, a laptop on their knee or an iPad or a you know, tablet device or a smartphone around and so you know, as consumers we're constantly surrounded by technology and our access to, to online is, is even, even greater. Can you actually track what device is being used uh, as opposed to, say, a computer versus a tablet, etc.? Yes, we can. Yeah, we um, the campaigns that we were in at Critio, um, we tag those those devices differently from a, a very simplistic perspective, um, and we can show the advertisers the you know the amount of traffic, the clicks and conversions, the number of sales, the total order value that's being created um, across those devices. We actually purchased um, an English company last year called um, AdEx, and basically what they've done is they're kind of the Google Analytics for in-app tracking. Um, we, 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 we bought them really for, for their ability to be able to um, help us um, help advertisers drive more um, app downloads, and then actually for the, the, the users that have downloaded those apps to to try and um, re-engage them with those apps. We know that sort of 7 out of 10 apps um, that people download on their phones are, are not used. So it's important from a, an advertiser's perspective when they spend a lot of money um, trying to get consumers to download the apps so they actually use them. Um, and we can also look at the users that uh, are using those apps more regularly and try to 
tailor the advertising around trying to get them to use those apps more frequently. Uh, are we seeing a growth in mobile advertising? Mobile advertising in Australia is, uh, is growing 300% year on year. And I think that really is um, as a reaction to advertisers really understanding you know, where consumers are spending their time and to make sure that you know, they have a good mobile presence. So um, they, they've designed their, their mobile websites around you know, simple functionality, um, websites that are easy to navigate, uh, and more importantly, easy to transact on if, if that's the, the overall objective for the advertiser. Jeremy, what effect will the increasing use of big data have upon your market and upon the customer-company relationship? I think what big data, <laughs> it's a real buzz, buzzword, but what it really is, is is trying to get your head around all of the information that we can track online, and it, it is quite vast, um, to be able to think about how to best address those consumers. Now, from an advertising point of view, um, we really think about it in terms of, of relevancy. So what we're trying to do at uh, Critia, and the way we see this part of our world, is to try and think about which is the best user to deliver the best message to at the best time um, on the best device. And really, if we're thinking about relevancy, um, and we know that it's important because Google have built uh, a multi-billion dollar business around trying to be as relevant as possible. For, so when you and I go to the search engine uh, and we type in a search query into Google, the advertising that comes back on Google uses all of the, the data from all of the other people that have <laughs> typed in a similar search query to really think about, you know, what is the intent behind that search query and, and to use that intent to try and display the most relevant ad at that point for that user. Um, you know, Google knows that the more relevant the ad, the, the better the, the click-through um, the better the um, response from the, the consumer is likely to be uh, and therefore the, the better response for the advertiser and, and obviously ultimately Google as well. And you know, what we're trying to do um, at Critio is do a very similar sort of thing to Google but in the display advertising space. So they're you know, trying to really think about that, you know, right ad, right time, right user, right device. We know if we get that right then we end up with, uh, with happy clients. One final question. What do you see as the big trends ahead now in digital advertising? Um, I think as we, we move more and more into using the depth of information that we have about consumers, obviously fully privacy compliant. Privacy is, uh, is something that we hold in extremely high regard. Critio, um, we've been working really hard for a long time to be at the forefront of, um, of consumer privacy and to be really quite proactive in that. You'll see the, the Ad Choices logo, which is a global initiative in, in all advertising, and that really gives the user the ability to opt out of, of any future advertising in, in real time. Um, but I think from um, an advertiser's point of view, it's really about trying to understand the lifetime value um, of a consumer and trying to their consumption habits, what they do, the devices that they use, to try and give them the best possible customer service. Um, you know, I think from... Um, an advertising point of view, if you really haven't got your sort of online and, and offline customer service lined up to make sure that you know, when the customer wants to contact you or interact with you, 
that you know who they are and you can see any past purchase history, um, what they're looking at, what they've done right now and try and help them in the most possible way, then I think you'd possibly, possibly be, be losing out. Jeremy Crooks, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Well, there's probably no good news in there for the newspaper industry unless uh, they themselves get involved in uh, major restructuring, and I think that's what some of them are doing. But very interesting. And now, Stephen Kukoulos, The Economist. That's right, and he's going to be talking to us all about the economic impact of getting rid of the carbon tax, and it's going to leave a big hole in government revenues. So let's talk to Stephen Kukoulos. Steve Coolis, uh, the government is about to abolish the carbon tax in the Senate. What impact will that have on the economy and government revenues? Look, there's a couple of implications from the from the carbon tax or the carbon price going. The most obvious one is on the budget that uh, I think over the forward estimates, it was re- reaping something around about three to four to five billion dollars a year. There was a bit of a variation from year to year. So basically, uh, if we just sort of average that out, it's, it's roughly three and a half to four billion dollars a year of revenue that they've foregone. And when we've got this budget uh, repair job, if you like that word, uh, to do, it's actually a big source of revenue that's being lost and they've got to make that up from other cuts or tax hikes somewhere else. So that's going to be one of the issues that they're going to have to plug the gap in terms of trying to get back to surplus. And that's one that's been apparent for some time. The other one, of course, and this is where the negotiations with the Palm United Party have been so interesting, it's uh, lowering energy prices. And uh, you know, Palmer wanted to make sure that the uh, power generating companies did pass it on to business and consumers. And it looks like that amendment has got through the parliament. So uh, we'll be seeing a, a moderate fall uh, in electricity prices over the course of the next short while. And that will um, obviously have some impact on demand and some impact on business margins. You know, not big, but it will have some impact. Other than that, there's a bit of a concern that you know, with the rest of the world moving you know, short, very surely towards um, pricing carbon, we're falling a little bit behind. Having been the leader, we're now at the back of the pack. And um, whether you like it or not, I'm pretty sure that sometime in the next three, five years, whatever it happens to be, Australia will have a price on carbon uh, and we'll have to go through this whole exercise again on how we do it, how we price it, who gets compensated and those sorts of things. So in terms of reform, it would have been simpler just to... If, if you like, if you if um, uh, Palmer was a bit smarter, he could have said to Mr Abbott, look, just drop the carbon price to one cent a tonne. So we still have it in there. And that when the other trading partners uh, move to price carbon and the rest of the world does, we can just bump it up to whatever the global price is. Now, what's the alarming part about what you're saying? Is it in effect, it's going to leave a $3 billion hole or so in the government's budget? What would offset that? Well, that, that's the that's the dilemma, and that's why I think the budget's been so poorly received by the population. Yeah, you know, th- that was the numbers were taken out of their budget that they delivered in May. So the budget numbers that we saw back in May did take out any revenue from carbon. So that that was sort of in the numbers. But as we've seen with all of the yeah you know, the kerfuffle and the sort of uh, anti budget sentiment that's around, they increased the excise on. Um, on petrol. They did uh, have the high income earner uh, tax hike for people earning over 180000 uh, They did have big cuts to uh, the public service, ABC, these sorts of things. So there are a whole lot of things that they had to do just to get back to square one. You had to cover this three and a half, four billion dollars a year. That's a lot of money that they were losing. They had to do these sorts of, implement these sorts of policies to get back to square one. And as we're seeing with the Senate right now, um, 
there's a very good chance um, a lot of them will not even get through. What implications are there in terms of, uh, I mean, Palmer's talked about us moving towards an ETS. Where, where do you see that travelling? Look, it's a slow old road. Um, yeah, I'm not even sure what Mr Palmer's definition of our major trading partners moving to an ETS is, whether it's got to be a nationwide uh, carbon pricing scheme, or as we're seeing in different uh, provinces in China and different uh, states within the US, they're moving to carbon pricing, but it's not a national pricing scheme. So, look, I think it's fairly clear, and I think the evidence is overwhelming, uh, that... Uh, the world is moving to a price on carbon, that most countries are, in fact, looking to sort of think of a way where uh, carbon can be priced uh, efficiently and fairly and with all the benefits that that delivers. In fact, we've had it for two years and it does reduce consumption of electricity. If you look at the recent national accounts, you can see that energy consumption has fallen since the carbon price has been in place and, equally importantly, that a higher proportion of the energy that we do use is generated from renewables and that's what it's all about and we're moving to more efficient um, uh, appliances and electronic goods that use less power so you know these benefits of having a price on carbon were starting to show up and are starting to show up so the question will be sometime down the track and I'm presuming it'll be more than two years time but after the next election where we will be thinking about well okay the rest of the world has moved this way we no longer have a price on carbon we're losing out our uh, our ability to be innovators in this space and renewables and the like and uh, we'll probably just have to import the technology that will allow us to be more energy efficient unfortunately. Now Stephen Coolis, uh, the big thing that the government has said is that households will save $550 with the abolition of the carbon tax. I'm trying to work my way through that. I'm trying to see how would that impact say on someone in the supermarket because the retailers uh, haven't actually indicated how much of their price increases are due to the carbon tax. So we don't know how much it will impact on ordinary people. This is the critical thing, I think, uh, Leon, you've nailed it. We saw when the carbon price came in, there was a lot of the Treasury modelling, you know, it added 0.7 of a cent a kilogram to the price of beef and things like that. So there was some impact there, but it was trivial and it would have been lost in the wash, if you you know what I mean. The big areas where it did impact, obviously, was uh, our electricity and gas bills, things like airline uh, fares, where they have to pay a fairly hefty chunk of the carbon price. Um, But as we're saying there, Qantas are are no longer reducing fares because the carbon price was sort of absorbed in the whole fee structure. So um, that $550 a year of savings that you talk about, well, there'll be an obvious probably a couple of hundred dollars a year when, when your electricity bill comes through. But I think that's been swamped by the fact that electricity prices are going up for a whole lot of other reasons. It's a, it's a debate that seems to be relatively um, uh, high brow for such a low impact thing. You know, $550 a year, while it does impact on a lot of people's finances, it's not that big when the economy is growing when wages are increasing at a multiple of that, when interest rates are low and cash flows of the household sector are in very, very good shape, um, household wealth's increasing, the stock market's going up, house prices are going up. So, look, it, it, I'm not saying it's not a not a, an issue for some households, but in the scheme of things, um, it's not a major item to see your price of you know a leg of lamb drop by you know two cents. It ain't going to make much difference. And I think it's a, it's a furphy to say that, first of all, that it imposed a huge impost on consumers when it was introduced two years ago, nor is it going to be a major saving when it's, when it's finally abolished. And uh, for that matter, people are not necessarily going to find that they're saving $550. I don't think you'll see it. 
Um, if I can use this example, it's a little bit like the uh, fuel excise, the petrol excise that, uh, well, we'll see if it gets through the Senate. It really was only going to add about 50 or 60 cents to a tank of, uh, of petrol. And of course, it depends when you drive into the petrol station, whether you notice that roughly half a litre or less than half a litre of petrol, or you use your discount voucher from your friendly supermarket. You know, it, it's an, they're important things. Don't get me wrong, they, they do matter, but in terms of you noticing a big wad of cash in your wallet at the end of the year, you, you're just not going to see it. It's going to be absorbed by other price effects and changes, and changes just in your own personal finances that have got nothing at all to do with carbon pricing. Well, that creates an interesting political problem for the government, doesn't it? Because people would say, well, it didn't save me anything. Ah, that's the issue, and I'm, I'm sure the opposition will be onto this one. So, uh, you know, this time next year when we have some data on, you know, what, what's happening to prices, uh, what's happening to uh, the economy more generally, if, if they can't find the fact that prices of things other than electricity that, you know, we all pay for our household budgets and, and the like... Other than that, if they can't find prices of other items falling, then, of course, they'll be easily able to sort of stand up and say, well, you repeal the carbon tax. Where are these big savings that you're talking about? Because inflation has actually got a plus sign in front of it. The price of things has gone up. And I think that's the huge issue that uh, the government could be painting itself into a corner about. And I'm sure the opposition will want to be um, trying to belt them <laughs> with that evidence when it comes through this time next year. Now, the Grattan Institute released a report the other week saying electricity prices were rising for a whole lot of reasons and the carbon tax was a very minor reason. It was all about the networks. Uh, I mean, what's your view about it? Do you, see, do you expect to see electricity prices still rising? Well, we, for, the, for the first year, probably not, because we will, we will have some savings from the carbon price. It's these other things that you quite rightly point out about the Grattan Institute and the uh, other generation um, issues and the poles and wires type um, distribution of electricity that are causing price rises to increase. Uh, so we've got this interesting sort of um, push and pull factor on prices. So probably for this first year, we will see prices either very weak or falling. So I think that's true. But again, in the second year, once the carbon price is gone, it's just a, basically a one-off shift in prices lower. And these other things that were always dominating uh, electricity generation prices will be, will be just as important. And of course, we've got a couple of state elections coming up uh, uh, in the not too distant future where uh, in New South Wales and Queensland, I think they're, um, the, the privatisation of electricity generation will be a, will be a hot uh, political issue and that may well come into the into the mix about what's going to happen to prices as well so I think this issue of electricity prices the carbon price will be around for the next uh, well the next couple of years both in terms of what it means for the price that we all pay for our electricity and also whether we actually have um, a policy agenda that's going to reduce carbon emissions which creates an interesting political and economic scenario for the government oh, oh it does and um, Gosh, this is one of the issues with a three-year term. You know, we're only just two years and a month or, or thereabouts from the next election. It's not that far away. And, uh, and you know, that's almost exactly the time frame where we would expect to see some of the issues associated with carbon pricing and the abolition of the carbon tax coming through. And as I said, these state elections are going to be really important because I think electricity and uh, privatisation of electricity assets are going to be a, a dominant issue, at least in a couple of them. So we've got this whole scenario where... Um, yeah, the politics remains messy. We've got the, uh, uh, a Senate that's made up of some interesting uh, independents and parties there that will continue to confuse the issue that it's going to be so vital that if uh, yeah, we're seeing the 
tax reform white paper coming out next year, I think it is. There's, there's some big issues in addition to carbon pricing that the government's got to get a handle on. It's got to be a good salesperson in terms of getting the community to agree to these changes. And um, if this recent budget and is any guide, I, you know, they need to lift their game. Stephen Coolis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Well, I guess out of all that, Leon, you can draw that uh, Joe Hockey and uh, Tony Abbott are in deep, deep trouble. That's right. And meanwhile, the Senate is filibustering and uh, the Greens and Labor are picking every point. So the carbon tax repeal isn't going through at this stage. No, it is not. And and above it all is uh, Clive Palmer enjoying every second of it. Absolutely. So now, Leon, the news. What's on the schedule? Well, Gary, first of all, the International Monetary Fund has cut its 2014 growth forecasts for the Eurozone. It's warned that the recovery in the single currency block is neither robust nor sufficiently strong. And it says growth this year will reach 1% instead of the 1.1% it had earlier forecast, although the estimate for 2015 remains at 1.5%, which is pretty low, Gary. It is when you compare it with China, 7.5. That's right. And look, in keeping with that, industrial production in the 18-member Eurozone has declined sharply in May, another sign that the currency area's economic recovery remains weak. The European Union Statistics Agency found that output from factories, mines and utilities fell by 1.1% from April. And that's the largest month-to-month drop since September 2012. In America, it's, uh, consumers are spending cautiously in June, but it's a sign the economy there is struggling to gain momentum. US retail sales rose a seasonal adjusted 0.2%. That's the weakest increase since January. And consumers stepped up their spending on clothing, general merchandise and healthcare products, but they cut their spending on big ticket goods like furniture and cars. And uh, Federal Reserve Chamberlain Janet Yellen has singled, signaled continuing low interest rates in her seminal annual report to Congress. And she says the US economic recovery is not yet complete and too many Americans remain unemployed. The other interesting thing about uh, Janet's speech was she was saying that um, tech stocks are way, way overvalued. That's right. People are looking for haven. There's an awful lot of money around, Leon, and it's trying to find a home. That's right. That's right. And meanwhile, our US industrial production increased modestly in June. And industrial production, which measures the output of US manufacturers, utilities and mines, rose a season adjusted 0.2%, according to the Federal Reserve. Again, that's pretty low, Gary. It's a long, slow recovery process, isn't it? And meanwhile, the Chinese economy grew at 7.5% during the second quarter of 2014 compared with a year ago. That is quite good, actually. Uh, For China, fixed asset investment, a key driver of economic growth, grew at 17.3% year-on-year. Retail sales expanded 12.4%. And according to the International Monetary Fund, China's had the largest consumption increase in the world since 2011. It's a middle class. It now numbers nearly 400 million people. And uh, they're aspirational and uh, they're learning about uh, Western ways of eating and entertaining themselves. Meanwhile, in Australia, all this uncertainty about the federal budget and the stronger Australian dollar is weighing on the confidence of chief financial officers, according to a Deloitte survey. The survey found a drop in the proportion of CFOs who are more optimistic about their company's prospects than they were three months ago. That's fallen to 6%. 
That's down from 36% in the first quarter, Gary. And that also mirrors changes in the Australian Bureau of Statistics survey of business profits, which means we're going to see lower profits. The survey found federal government policy had the most negative effect on CFO confidence, although most felt the federal budget was likely to hit the overall economy more than their individual businesses. And attitudes to the dollar also weighed, reflecting worries about export competitiveness. And that's also reflected in business finance commitments falling in May, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Uh, They showed total business finance commitments fell a season adjusted 6% to $41.1 billion. So businesses are borrowing less. Everybody's very cautious and uh, you know, it's just anxiety. And of course, the scene in Canberra is not helping. No, no, no. We'll get onto that later. But uh, uh, meanwhile, levels of consumer anxiety have reached their highest point in more than a year, according to the latest NAB survey and that's due to growing concern about the may federal budget and cost of living pressures the nab quarterly australian consumer anxiety index reached 64.5 points in june that's up from 61.7 points in march people are worried about health job security and the ability to fund retirement and concern is highest among low-income earners divorced people and women and of course uh, under that is also our youth unemployment which are really dangerous absolutely now uh, the, the reserve bank of Australia is warning that low interest rates are working. It's difficult to judge to which they will offset the fall in mining investment in the minutes of its July meeting. The central bank warns that the Aussie dollar remains high, particularly given the fall in key commodity prices. Now, the iron ore price has fallen about 30% this year as uh, supply increases and growth of demand for China's steel softens. Although it's been edging up, it's trading around 97 bucks 90 this week. Yeah, it was down as low as 85. Fortescue did one shipment at 85. So it's it's a movable feast. Now, other interesting news is that um, Qantas is going to remain majority Australian-owned, with the government forced to abandon plans for unlimited foreign ownership of the airline. The government has caved in, adopted a Labor proposal that foreign interests won't hold more than 49% in the national carrier. Now, the coalition actually caved in to Labor because uh, it had moved legislation to open investment after complaints from the airline about the unfair Qantas Sales Act, which limits at 35% of combined holding by foreign airlines and 25% by any single foreign investor. Now, the Labor proposal removes the lower caps and allows greater but not majority foreign investment. So it'll still remain Australian-owned. Yeah, and I think you're going to see a move of the Middle Eastern airlines and investors coming in there where they can. That's right. Now, the other interesting piece of news, Gary, was what's happened to David Jones. Uh, David Jones shareholders have overwhelmingly supported the $2.2 billion takeover bid from South Africa's Woolworths, with more than 96% of votes flowing in support of the deal. That is amazing. And also, the resounding nature of the shareholder approval means that it diminishes the prospect of ASIC intervention. So it just has to clear its way through the uh, federal court and uh, the vote also means that Solomon Liu is going to extract about 213 million from a shareholding that originally cost him about 20 million. Yeah there's been some muttering about that where Solomon's uh, getting all the money and some of that maybe should have gone to the shareholders. Well there's already speculation about what he might do with that lump of capital his company should receive. Uh, Some are even talking about him buying Maya. Well yeah that's an interesting prospect and I guess he might like to do that. That's right, that's right. Now, uh, West Farmers owned Coles, um, Australia's second biggest supermarket chain, is introducing a mobile wallet service that plans to offer personal loans and credit card via a new joint venture with GE Capital Australia. And the 50-50 venture with GE Capital Australia will begin operating in 2015, subject to regulatory approval. They'll be offering loans, Coles-branded 
credit cards and a mobile wallet and a credit card and store loyalty card in one that can attach to mobile phones and tablets. Yeah, this, this is, I think, the beginning of a major trend. You possibly next see Telstra getting into a similar sort of thing. I think so. But look, it's not going to have a big impact on Coles revenue during the first year, but it will, it will definitely promote customer loyalty and spending. And it might just affect the banks a bit. That's right. Now, now to what's happening in the Senate. Uh, Joe Hockey is threatening to bypass the Senate and introduce the budget changes through regulation, which has annoyed everyone in his party. Absolutely, yes. And and that's 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 been quite serious. And uh, also, last night on the seven thirty report, Access Economics um, economist Chris Richardson was saying on saying it would cost. The Senate's action would cost the government $300 billion. It would leave a $300 billion hole in the budget. Yep, it's all pretty serious. And, and, you know, it's not helping confidence in the country and it's not helping the respect the the population has for politicians. No, but meanwhile, the Abbott government has struck a deal with the Palmer United Party and Ricky Muir on its watered-down financial advice rules. And in the Senate on Tuesday, Finance Minister Matthias Cormann revealed the government had agreed with the balance of power senators to introduce further protections as a condition of their support for the unravelling of changes made under the previous Labor government. And uh, the final Senate vote was 31 to 34. And Labor and the Greens had tried stopping that. And that has caused all sorts of concern from seniors and consumers who say shareholders are being screwed over and Clive Palmer has sold them out after creating all that noise for nothing. Yeah, well, it's a fair opinion. That's right. Now, meanwhile, there was a Murray inquiry into Australia's, Australia's financial system. It was the first sweeping investigation since the 1996 Wallace inquiry. It didn't actually make recommendations, but it provided a clear signal on a wide range of topics. It went to 460 pages, Gary, and it highlighted the growth in borrowing by super funds, saying if a trend continues, it could create problems for the financial systems because more funds, including self-managed funds, are using debt to buy property, and that's creating risks in the financial Financial system. Think of China's shadow banking. That's where That's that right. came from. Well, uh, the question is then: Would it, the practice be banned? It's canvassed that. And the sweeping report also supports maintaining the four pillars banking policy, which prevents a consolidation through mergers for Australia's biggest banks. Not surprising, David Murray used to run the Commonwealth Bank. Yeah, that's right. But Mike Smith's taken him on in a lot of what he said. That's right. Now, the other big issue, of course, in the report was it actually raised questions about changing Labor's future of financial advice legislation. It actually criticised the government. It says Australia's financial services regulation is based entirely on disclosure and it says it's resulted in complex and lengthy documents that don't help consumers understand anything. It imposes significant costs on the industry and it's a total failure and hasn't helped anyone. Yep, I think David's probably right. And he says that the culture of legal compliance rather than a focus on how to best inform consumers is influencing the design of disclosure documents. And the interim report then goes on to torpedo the government's opposition to FOFA and the threats of its amendments, saying consumers need access to good advice. By golly, we do. So speaking as a very small investor, Leon. Think of all the investors who have been done over by various other collapses. And that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week, we're going to have an interview with Peter Hart. He's the CEO of workforce management company, Kronos. We're looking forward to talking to him. He's a very interesting man. It's an interesting company too. Started out making time clocks. That's right. That's right. And that's it for us for this week. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizz or on Facebook. Stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.